We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. Coming up later on the program, Drea Denur will be here. She has a, a soundscape, a concert, an event, really, uh, coming up at Shea's Buffalo tomorrow called Reimagining Black Death, a Requiem for Our Suffering. What is that all about? Jay Moran will be with her to discuss that and uh, look at that from all sorts of interesting ways. A lot of good conversation coming up there. But in the meantime, first, Jennifer Parker is here. She runs her own PR firm. This is going to be a long list. Bear with me. (laughs) She runs her own PR firm. She's worked on a variety of informal mentorships. She's promoted all sorts of women and minority business enterprises. She's worked on entrepreneurship. She's got something called the Black Capital Network. She's done work with 43 North. She's got a law degree. She is someone that is so plugged into, I think, the business community around here that if we're talking about entrepreneurship and talking about MWBEs, that she is the one we had to have in here. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. I am thrilled, Dave, and very honored to be on this show. Now, you have done an awful lot. I I alluded to it in that long list there. Um, And one of the things that I think it all springs from, we were talking about this before the program started, very interesting. You think that the entrepreneurial spirit the idea of black self-confidence really springs from, in many cases, the HBCUs. Talk about that. Well, I have to say my spirit came from that because attending a historical black college and university in Charlotte, North Carolina, Johnson C. Smith, I was always told I could do it. Okay. You can do it, and we're here to help show you. It it was just a sense of pride. I, I got to play devil's advocate. If the HBCUs tell black people you can do it, do we look at the other side of the coin and say traditional education tells you maybe you can't? No. What okay. I have found out, Dave, is what's so important. It may even start in the home uh, and seeing having access to people, places and experiences of people that look like you, whether it's a female, whether it's a white male and you're a white male. I think that really brands something in you. You can, rem- you can model behavior you see, but if you don't see it, it might not occur to you that you can do that. That is so true. Because when I was growing up, I knew, I looked at television and you would see uh, the singers like Dinah... Um, the Supremes. Diana Ross, sure. Diana Ross, the Supremes, and uh, Diane Carroll on her show. And you see the classy look that I wanted to adopt. And then when I went to college, I said, now, what what career am I looking at? And I did not want to be a teacher, but teaching now I appreciate it because it's part of what we all do in our profession. Yeah. And so law, going to law school was important. The legal, looking at the bigger picture and advocating for people really attracted, was attracting to me. Is there a dearth of black, a scarcity of black entrepreneurship? I don't, I think it's on the rise. It's on the rise. When I was growing up in the South, I thought it was everywhere because... I grew up in the South, in North Carolina, at a time where we were at the end of Jim Crow, where everything was segregated. And I only knew of black florists, black grocery stores, uh, black retailers, 
that's the only thing I saw. And with A&T University being the center of everything of the black community in Greensboro, North Carolina, that's what I saw. I saw the strength. By no means, obviously, am I advocating for segregation, but that's interesting. You, you're, you're almost suggesting that it created a sense of independence that created a can-do attitude. It, it did because it's saying, okay, we're being left out of this, so but we we're going to make have to do ourselves. We have to do ourselves. And, but you can take that can-do attitude and find your niche in a integrated community because everyone can add value. And that's what it's about, adding value and making an impact. That brings me back to the initial question. You say uh, that, that black, on, black entrepreneurship right now is on the rise. Yes, it is. Tell me more. In Buffalo specifically? I see it. When I started the Black Capital Network Economic Empowerment Conference that we did from 2003 to 2010, I always believed that the next group of entrepreneurs were sitting in high school classrooms and our colleges. And Buffalo is a college town, whether people want to embrace mm-hmm. it or not. It is a college town. And now what I'm seeing is that there are so many, and research has shown that there are so many African-Americans that want to be entrepreneurs. They want, it's all about creating, filling a niche. The creativity and innovation is on the rise. It's there. It's just exploding. So the great, wonderful idea that someone has to create a business around is there. It's there. But they just need a they need somebody to hold their hand and say, this is the way we go. This is how you build a sustainable business. It can be done. It starts with that vision and that can do attitude to do the work and the research that's needed to make it wonderful. You've gotten ahead of me. I was going to ask uh, the, <laughs> the hand holding, the mentorship somewhere along the way that also involves a talk about capital, because a great idea without the money to make it happen, is probably not going to happen. Well, that's what I ha- I've learned a little bit more during my time working with 43 North, working with startups, African-American female startups as clients. I What I've seen is that you can't do it solo and attract money. Money is attract that money comes when you have a team to make that vision come alive. Investors usually don't invest in... Tell me more. This is interesting. Investors won't just throw money at a person with an idea. No. You have to have show how you're going to implement that idea. And usually implementing can't come from one person. It You need a team of people to make it work and become sustainable. And that then brings in the mentorship. Hey, you've got a great idea. Let me help you develop a business plan. Yes. Okay. The steps and the business plan made, just like Jeff Bezos wrote his business plan on a napkin. It doesn't have to be a thorough, complicated document. It can be, okay, bullet point one, I am going to, how will I get to producing that idea I have. Yeah. In his case, bullet point one, sell books online. Bullet point two, expand and take over the world. Come on. I mean, that's kind of it, really. But the, you you have the steps in front of you, and it's like, how I'm going to get, and you reevaluate it every year. It's like, what worked, what didn't work, and you keep working those steps. I always, I, I cite him a lot. People say, uh, why, why are we changing something, or why are we doing something? And uh, aren't we good now? We're, we don't have, nothing's broke, don't fix it. And, well, and my response usually is, yeah. And Amazon started out selling books, and it was a great bookseller. It was the best bookseller, but it decided it needed to be more. It needed to be more. Maybe he listened to the great business people, listened to their target audiences. They listened to what the consumer wants. The consumer, he saw, he looked a little deeper why were they coming to this one platform to buy books? They made it easy. Yeah. They made it fast. And they gave them an array of selections. 
So he just took that model and say, well, if they came for books, maybe they'll come for more. toilet paper. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. I picture it. I want to, though, focus in, and, and forgive me if this is um, rude or inappropriate, I want to focus in on race, though. Is it harder for the black entrepreneur? I think it is, and for women. Yes, I think it is. I think because of it goes back to what's in our mind when we grow up. When I was growing up as a little black girl in the South, I saw only white men usually on television in the business. And that's, if you look at the history of the, the business people that built America on the History Channel, mm-hmm. you see men, white yeah. males. Because they had access to the dollars. Right. That doesn't mean the females didn't have any ideas or the African-Americans didn't have ideas. They had a network that could would listen to them. And that's what it is. It's the stereotype. Do banks need to do more? Are they uh, stepping up to the plate in the ways they should? I think banks have evolved. I think they have. They're doing what they can. Banks are in the business of building wealth. Okay. And they cannot just give away money to anyone. Right. You really have to come with a sustainable, Here it profitable is again. plan. Yeah, it all goes back to the business plan then. Yes. So do you help people develop these plans? Take me through that process. Yes, indeed. I uh, th- Someone may call and say, Miss Parker, I have this idea. And I said, what is the idea? And then sometimes that idea may not be good for just the Buffalo community. It is a national idea. And it's like, okay, I always encourage people to do, let's do the research. Where's the market for that product, that service? Is it, where is it? That's very important. And what's going to make your product or service stand out more from the next person? All of that is very important. At what point does the obstacle of being a woman or a black woman come into play? Is it is it access to capital? I think it's just excellence and perseverance. Attitude from the beginning then? Attitude really? is important. Hmm. Having a positive attitude, a can-do attitude is very important. And having a sustainable, doing the work, the research to bring, okay, you if you didn't have the attitude and that you could be successful, you're not going to dig into making it happen. So this then goes back to the idea of HBCUs instilling certain values in people, values that you then see as necessary for entrepreneurs, regardless of whether they went to an HBCU or not. Yes, indeed. Okay. Confidence and and uh, research and innovative thinking. Yes, and perseverance. Okay. All right. Jennifer Parker is with us, among other things. And again, the list is long. She runs the Black (laughs) Capital Network. She works with mentorships and and business development, especially in the field of MWBE, Minority and Women-Owned Business Enterprises. That's a a phrase that sometimes trips me up. But I I, 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 I think it's it's a government designation, though, right? Yes, it is. It's a government designation. Just by being a woman and a black person with a business, I am not automatically an MWBE. No, you are. You may be a woman-owned business or an African-American-owned business, but the MWBE is a government designation. Because there are certain set-asides for MWBEs, and if you have the certification, you can get that access to that extra business? Is that basically yes, the way it works? but I wouldn't call it set-asides. Okay. I would say that it gives you a access to an opportunity to be included, to be included. Does the program work? I think it does. I think it has worked in Buffalo and it has worked in New York State. It gives you an opportunity to get your foot in the door. And once you get your foot in the door, it's up to you to prove that you belong there and that you have something of quality to contribute. If you can say you help the city build this particular brick building over here because of the MWBE program, you can then use that to leverage other business. Yes, you can, and inspire the next group of entrepreneurs. How does one get the certification? That process, I'm betting, is not automatic. 
It's getting easier during the years. Yes. And the state has a great website for minority women business enterprises. Okay. And it it walks through if you had never been certified, there is a link. If you're recertifying, there is a link. And if you are disadvantaged business, which is a federal designation, how to get a New York MWBE certification. And... Is it just a matter of applying? Uh, what what's there is a long there's an application where you have to prove that you are a minority owned business, you know, a majority owned business, and also what your income level may be. Is it an easy process? Could it be simplified more? I believe what I've seen is that it was very complicated at one time, and I see it getting better and better each year. All right. I see it getting better. It, most people think everything is complicated when it's dealing with paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back uh, with more. Jennifer Parker is here. We're talking about, oh, gosh, lots of things, mentorship, yes. entrepreneurship, the kind of attitudes that you need in order to develop a business in Buffalo. Much more to come. After this on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot and your money will support high quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. WNED PBS is cooking up a storm with the premiere of our new live and local program, Now We're Cooking, Saturday, November 19th, starting at 1.30 p.m. Watch on WNED PBS and stream on YouTube or the PBS video app. Watch as chefs Stephen Foreman, Daniela Kaiser, Michael Wynn, Jason Davidson, and Christine Cushing present an afternoon of delicious meals, Saturday, November 19th at 1.30 p.m. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And before we launch into more conversation, I do want to underline what that announcement just said, the idea of this being an interactive program. If there's a comment that you would like to have for this program or for future programs, seriously, take our app, hit the Talk to to Us button. When you do that, it opens up a little recorder on your phone or your device, so you can just say, hey, Dave, uh, I think you should have a guest on about blah, blah, blah. Or if you have a guest on about education, and there's a reason I mentioned that, If you have a guest on about education, you ought to ask them this or this or this. Part of the reason why I mention it, too, is coming up in about a week and a half, we're going to have Tanja Williams here from the Buffalo School System for the entire hour. Uh, It's going to be a big show, but I think it's a show that will only be enhanced by your participation in it using the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app. We're talking right now to Jennifer Parker. She runs her own PR firm. She's part of the Black Capital Network. She's an advocate for HBCUs. She's an advocate for entrepreneurship around town. And I want to talk, Jennifer, about how you got there, because I think in every person there is maybe a personal story that can be instructive and illustrative. Well, Dave, that story starts as a little girl growing up in North Carolina, in the South during the late 60s and 70s. That was a turbulent time in our country. Mm-hmm. I had aunts that were sh- uh, daughters that were sharecroppers, daughters of sharecroppers. And they all, out of 13 children, those nine girls went to college. And they also, they all, they told us that we had to do the same. So when I went to elementary school, I knew I was going to college. College was seen as the way to advance for African-Americans. 
and I saw these proud women digging into their education, and they went to historical black colleges. So historical black colleges are very prominent in the South. In North Carolina, I have many of them. And I had aunts and cousins that attended historical black colleges, and that was my first choice. But I think when we talk about the South, there's other things we can say are prevalent there, too. Um, Jim Crow, bad attitudes. Talk about that journey and tell me a little bit, because this is something others have, have shared on the show as well, the difference maybe between the South and Buffalo. Well, that, that down there maybe the racism is overt and here it's still there, but it's more covert. That is what I found. When I, was, when I moved to Buffalo and attended law school, I had, that's the first, I shared it with someone else years ago that I, when I moved to Buffalo is when I felt that I was different and I was black. I felt the racism very deeply. You felt it here more than in the South? Yes, I did. So maybe I was in a bubble and maybe my parents was protecting me. But what, you know, what's really weird, you know, when they were demanding that all of those Confederate uh, statues be taken down, I never remember seeing those mm. because I had people in my life that would say, we're going to ignore that. You got to keep your eye on the prize. We're Black gonna... history was every day. Yeah, the, you, you talked about this earlier to some of the businesses. Uh, you focus on the black forest, uh, florist or, or the, the black grocery store. Yes. And you're not going to necessarily notice the Robert E. Lee statue nope. over there. Nope. Wow. No one talked about it. Mm. No one talk about it. So therefore, when I moved here, I fit I, down in the South. There was like Miss Miss Jackson. That was my maiden name. Miss Jackson this, Mister Jackson this, and I moved here. And I would go into a store and catch someone grabbing their purse when they looked at me. And I had a suit on. Mm. And I couldn't understand that. It was very disturbing. And then as I did, I'm a researcher. I did some research looking at documentaries on PBS with Henry Louis Gates. Talked to Dr. Henry Teller here. And I saw that the difference, there was two migrations of African-Americans to the North. Mm -hmm. The first wave came to get an education and move up the social ladder. The second group came to get a job, and that's a big group that came to Buffalo, the steel mills, the auto plants. And and what difference does that make? Does the one group have different aspirations or different goals than the other? I think there's different there there's a different mindset for entrepreneurship and building a career or a job. There it's a different mindset. And it's not that it's wrong, but there's a different mindset. One that, came here to execute an idea. Yes. Or to find the dream, as it were. Find the dream. The, the American other, dream. The other came here just to find a job and work for someone? And to to build up their go build up the economic well, ladder. Okay. Yes. You see right. what I mean? Generational wealth that Generation, was not available. That wasn't available in the Jim Crow. It wasn't permitted. Okay? Now, bring it full circle for me. How do those two different types of migration affect the idea that, that we are perhaps more racist in the North than you experienced in the South? Well, what it what I wouldn't say, it, it, I, it may be not racist, but it could be you didn't understand the full story, the cultural story, okay? In the South, where I went to school, we in the sex, uh, attending HSBCU schools, you had African-American history every day, mm. okay? And you move here, and if it's not taught correctly in the school systems or in the homes or in the community, there are stereotypes that are put in our heads of how, uh, African-American supposed to look, talk, secede, and you have barriers that <laughs> wasn't dealt with that was dealt in the South. The South said, you know what? You have this Jim Crow. You're beating us down, but we wanna, we're going to continue to rise. We're going to stand. That ugly elephant was not dealt with in the North. The North was always supposed to be the place of freedom, security. But 
we didn't deal with the elephant because, heck, there are no elephants. The elephant was ignored. It was ignored. All right. And then bring it full circle for me. Full 514. Cir- for, oh, my gosh. I just get chills when I think about that because it was it impacted our elderly community. It impacted the entire Buffalo community. I was really inspired by seeing how the community came together. The city of good neighbors was really the city of good neighbors. Mm. But it's a great opportunity to have those real conversations. I had the opportunity to promote Corey Green project called the Blackness Project right, right. that came out of the Whiteness Project. And I recommend people look at the both of them. Mm-hmm. That whiteness project's way before its time. It talked about the perceived privilege that Wh- we're seeing. Wh- Whitney Dow. Whitney Dow. Yeah. Talked about the perceived privilege of white Americans. And okay, what if that is true? We need to talk about it and we need to deal with it. It's okay. What I found with the Blackness Project that was a response to the Whiteness Project is that when we were show the film and then there was a talk back at the end of the film, I noticed that there was a lot of activity. The audience would be majority white because that encouraged me. At a screening of the Blackness Project. Project. Okay. That encouraged me because that means people wanted to do differently. They, but to get there, they need to know the history. And they were there to get the history to see how they could make a difference. And it was, David, it was so encouraging to see sometimes other white Americans checking other white Americans say, wait a minute, why mm. are you doing that? So you, therefore, having seen all the things you just described, I got to believe you're an optimist. I am. Really? I am. I am. Okay. But it takes work. I believe in work. That's where I was going to go next. What do we need to do in order for you to uh, fulfill the dream, to to, um, preserve that optimism? I think that we have to be honest with ourselves and say, I don't know the Buffalo history. I don't know the African-American history nationally or local, but... I'm going to make it my business to learn it so I can have a better eye and better attitude about the next, my neighbors or the next people. And it's important for African-Americans to know the Irish-American story, the German-American story, all the people that migrated to uh, Buffalo to create, have a better life. It's important for all of us to know about each other. That is interesting you say that, because I think the metaphor that is often used, obviously, is the melting pot. And if I put, um, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. If if I put, um, I don't know, something in a stew and the carrot melts into the beef, then they have no carrot and they have no beef. Melting is not necessarily the goal for you. No. Okay. No. I just want people to know about each other, the culture, the history, and see the strengths and see the significance of each other and 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 come together and not block opportunities and all of us can thrive and build up and make this a great city. In large part you've just answered it, but my final question is often this. In the broadest sense you can address it, what does Buffalo need right now? Buffalo just needs honesty and Buffalo needs to embrace what makes it a strong city and that's the diversity of this city. We just need to embrace it. All right. Jennifer, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for being here. Jennifer Parker, um, Jackson Parker LLC is her PR firm. And that's really the umbrella where you can uh, find out about all the other things, the mentorship, the entrepreneurship, uh, the, the, the different things that we've talked about for this past half hour. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Coming up next, performer and artist Drea Denour, the founder of Feed Buffalo, is talking about a really interesting program tomorrow night at Shays, Reimagining Black Death, a Requiem for Our Suffering. Much more about that after this on WBFO. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. 
Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot and your money will support high quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Support for WBFO comes from our members and from Ohm Integrative Wellness, featuring Sanosine, an automated breast ultrasound screening system. After a mammogram, women with dense breasts and implants often learn it suggests a possible cancer or is inconclusive. With simple sound waves, Sanosine helps reduce false positives and false negatives with no injections, compression, or radiation. Learn more at OWMintegrativeWellness.com. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Our next guest, Drea Donor, is with us this morning. Thanks very much for coming in. I know you're really busy because you've got a big <laughs> event going tomorrow. Yes, thank you for having me. The big event that we're talking about, Reimagining Black Death, Requiem for Our Suffering. Yes. This dates back a couple of years now, doesn't it? Take us back to its origins. Yes. So when I first learned that George Floyd was murdered, um, I, like many of us, watched the murder. And I realized at some point that I had become a witness to a public lynching. And I began to think about how did this affect me um, spiritually, um, emotionally? Where did it go inside of my body? And how did that trauma affect me and, and what would be the lasting effects of that? And so in attempt to heal myself, I began to um, rely on my own memory. Uh, I feel like our internal memory that our ancestors gifted us with tells me that this is not all that there is, that this shell that we live in is not all that there is. And I begin to meditate on the spirit. And so I, in order for me to uh, heal I relied on my imagination, like my people have done for, for centuries. And I thought about when he said, Mama, please. Mm -hmm. And I imagined his mother, who is deceased, who actually uh, came for him with an extended hand. And I began to imagine the, his spirit leaving the body and being uh, placed in her hand. And her hand became the vehicle that ushered the spirit from his body to what I call home. And that made me happy. And then I began to think about what does that journey of the spirit leaving the body and returning home sound like? What does it look like? And what does it feel like? And that essentially is the Reimagined Black Death Project. You have taken this one insight and expanded it into this production that is fairly extensive. You're going to be doing some singing, you're going to be playing yep. the piano, but there's more going on. Absolutely. Uh, we, we're going to have dancing. I think movement is very important. It can, um, you know, show people how you feel. And we also have an opera singer. We have uh, vocalists flying in from um, Chicago. They'll be here today. So I, for this particular show, I'm focusing on the voice. And in uh, recent performances, I would have like strings and organ and a lot of musicians. But for this one, I want to really focus on the sound of the voice and how it can um, kind of hold this trauma, hold this grief, but also usher us into healing. How about your healing? What can you tell us about it? Because this is all about healing. Absolutely. But what about for you? Can you Tell us, maybe take us back to that, that George Floyd incident that's mm -hmm. so scarring and um, you know, so tragically memorable. But where have you gone? Where were you at that time? Where have you gone since? 
Well, at the time, I didn't know how to process it at all. And for some reason, that incident took me all the way back to my childhood. So I think I first started out thinking, I'm going to make this project, I'm going to make this music, and I'm going to help us all heal. But then I had to be very, very honest. Um, Grief makes you be honest. I think if you're going to really, really, truly heal, you got to look at yourself. And I began to see that this is a really uh, healing project about me. And it took me back to my childhood. And one of the best memories of my childhood is my mother gifting me with a book called The People Could Fly by Virginia Hamilton. And James Earl Jones, um, he narrated the book. It came with a cassette tape. And when I think about the concept of Black people flying, it makes me so happy. Oftentimes in my dreams, I see myself flying and it just comforts me. And so this project in a weird way, like thinking about, you know, imagining the spirit flying from all of these troubles in this this harsh world, um, it brought me back to my childhood and it healed certain places within me. You grew up in, in the city of Buffalo? Yes, I did. And so again, it's interesting when you said this took you back in that, that memory. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a good memory, of mm-hmm. course. But was it a good memory because of maybe how you felt about what other things were going on around you and how this maybe lifted your spirits? Yeah, I think it was just a good memory um, in my childhood. You know, just thinking about, I had some challenges, you know, like many of us do. And it was just a memory that made me smile. It made it, it comforted me and helped me to remember that my childhood wasn't all bad. And so, but this this project is, um, if you go to the website, reimagineblackdeath.com, it says, expanding the testimony through remembrance. And I believe that the memory is very powerful. I believe the imagination is powerful. And when you think historically of different traumas that our people have suffered, um, something that has kept us alive and fortified us is the memory and our imagination. So that's what this project really focuses on. And that's what people will really see when they come to the show. I like that idea about using the imagination Mm -hmm. for healing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, do you think that's something that everybody does? Or is that, is that an issue for some people? You seem to be very much in touch with your creative, (laughs) (laughs) your creative instincts. But what about for, for most people? Is that, is there a block there for, for a lot of folks, do you think? Well, think about a child in school, right? When you're when you're in kindergarten or pre-K, you know, your teacher reads stories to you and then they ask you what you think about the story. And then they might even ask you to write your own story. And then when you get older, it's you're, you, you start to read other people's stories and then you have to imagine what they meant, what messages they were trying to convey in those stories. And then you go to college and then you read more of other people's thoughts and minds and stories. And then, you know, so I think at some point. You know, if we're being completely honest, I think we lose imagination and some something about the way this world is structured causes us to focus on what people call reality. And I think that much of what we call reality is not actually reality because what we see in front of us is really a manifestation of something that happened spiritually first. Everything like this radio station, everything, this was a thought in someone's mind. And now we're sitting here doing this interview. So if we remember that, then we could put more energy on the spirit through meditation, through memory, through silence, through connecting with nature. It can fortify us. How how did you find your way to this level of uh, processing things, I guess? That's kind of a cold word for, Mm -hmm. obviously you found a spirituality. It's not something that you've always had. It, It developed over time. Well, I have to thank my grandmother for raising me in the church. I think the church was my first introduction to uh, spirituality. I think it put me on the path to reconnect with myself spiritually. But, um, yeah, I'm always uh, asking questions. I'm always listening to different sounds. And I'm always on a quest for healing. And I think some of the healing is not just my own, but it's ancestral as well. So when I'm quiet, I not only hear my voice, but I do believe I believe I hear the voices of my ancestors as well. And I think they're ushering this path. I like the idea of, of, of sounds because part of the description of reimagining Black Death Requiem for Our Suffering yes. is described as a soundscape. So with, with, I don't know how much of a spoiler alert you want to put <laughs> in here, but well, what kind of sounds might we hear if you if you can share? I don't want to, again, we don't want to give yes. it all away. Well, this, this project is multi-layered, two years in the making. Um, 
But this particular show is unlike anything I've ever done because it focuses on the voice. I've actually never done a performance with like a full ensemble. I'll say maybe, you know, you have background singers, one or two. But this time, you know, I'll have seven, you know, and I'm just focusing on the voice. So you'll hear just different sounds, not so much verse hook, verse hook, reprise. You know, you'll hear these voices really painting um a platform and a space and ushering us into a space to really just be still and to look within. Um, I'm really intrigued about the sound. <laughs> so uh, live voices or just, yes. did, okay. All right. Live uh, voices. Live voices will yep. be uh, heard on stage at Shays tomorrow for, for this as well. Um, it, I, I'm always, when it comes to our community, the community here in, in Buffalo, obviously, you know, there everybody's struggled since George Floyd. It really kind of opened up a new consciousness to a certain extent. I would say, right? Ha- have you seen that with the people that that you know and the people that you talk to? Because you know, besides being an artist, you also are involved with Feed Buffalo as well. That's your organization. So you're you're interacting with a lot of people. Yeah, I think um, these murders that affected us. I think COVID really COVID um, because it forced people inside in more ways than one. You had to stay in your house and then you had to, you couldn't run from your issues. You couldn't run and go to work and shut off anything. You had to sit with yourself, you know, COVID really changed the world. But I think for me, it changed me in a good way. And I'm noticing that people are connecting with themselves more and then in turn connecting with one another more. I think I see a heightened level of compassion. I see a heightened level of empathy. I see people um, having conversations that they, you know, maybe in the past were uncomfortable having. And I think those are all beautiful benefits that can really move us forward. That's very encouraging Mm -hmm. to hear that because I think the world needs a little more empathy, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, what, What do you think has changed for people? Again, maybe like you said, covid or maybe we should just take a look back to what it was like before. How mm-hmm. what was block what was blocking that type of empathy, would you say? Sometimes too much movement is not good. So you need to be still. And I think we can learn a lot from water. If you sit by the water, uh, one time I, I, I like to go by the water when the moon is full sometimes. So one time I went to the foot of ferry and when I tell you as the moon was rising it looked like the water looked like a satin sheet Mm. and it just, it was moving, but very still. It was almost like a mirror. It was like glass. And then as the moon got higher and higher, the, the, the water started to move faster and so rapidly. And I don't even know what happened. It was like somebody was waving a massive fan over the water and then the water got still again. And I think life is about the ebb and flow. And I think we were, we were ebbing a lot, and then, but we weren't necessarily flowing before, you know, because we were focused on these deadlines. But, you know, during COVID, you had these Zoom meetings. Nobody knew how to work the Zoom. <laughs> the parents were now it. homeschooling. You didn't know what to do. So you had to, you were forced to be still. And I think COVID, in a weird way, it gave us a reminder that some of the greatest lessons will come in silence, in the stillness, you know, and we can learn these lessons from, from nature. Our guest uh, this morning on Buffalo What's Next, Drea Denor. Uh, tomorrow, she'll be performing, uh, I don't know, performing is quite the right way to say it, but Reimagining Black Death, Requiem for Our Suffering is her presentation production yes. that will be on at, at Shays. I'm interested in how you've developed your craftsmanship here. You, you seem to be somebody who's very creative, and I think we've, we've already touched upon that, but there are lots of elements here. You know, you're going to be doing some singing. You're going to play the piano tomorrow. You're also into making films. So you're developing a lot of technique or have developed a lot of technique yes. over the years. Can you take us through your journey? Sure. I can tell you I didn't go to school for film. I didn't hmm. go to school for music. I don't have um, voice teachers. But what I do, I think my one of my greatest skills, if you will, is listening. And I think people want to hear that I study with this person or I read this book or I study this film or study this particular artist, but that is not my path. The thing that I hold to is 
my art of listening to the spirit, my spirit, and then the spirit of God, the spirit of my ancestors. So I really feel inspired to do every single thing that I'm doing. And much of my work came to me. Um, for me, it feels like a survival, a means of survival. If I don't create, if I don't, um, like I can tell you that I'm sad, but I can tell you, I can show you that I'm sad when I sing a particular song and play the piano or sometimes without even singing. So for me, it was, it's life or death for me. Either I'm going to present this, this work to you um, as it came to me with the same inspiration and passion for not just for me, but for you too, or I'm just going to merely exist. And for me, that is a form of death. And I wish to live. You mentioned the spirit of your ancestors mm -hmm. and that's, they have touched you. Mm -hmm. What what does that sound like? Look like for you? What what do you, what do you what? I'm, I'm asking. I guess what are you experiencing <laughs> as as you as you touch that? Because you know yeah. when you talk about the spirit of your ancestors, that's that's very powerful. Yeah, we must always remember that we are never alone. We are always walking with a multitude of ancestors. We we carry. We literally carry them with us. Like scientists have proven to us that we have our ancestors in within our DNA. They literally are a part of us. And so I think too, too much movement means that we don't remember that. And when we start feeling alone, that introduces a different type of grief that can prevent us from discovering our purpose and hinder us from connecting with other people. And I do believe that we're here to to connect and to remember and to offer. So I love that you said, um, I don't know that this is a performance tomorrow. It's not. It's an offering. Everything mm. I do is an offering. I went to Maureen's flowers, shout out. I love her flowers. But I had a vision of myself giving people these white flowers. And I called her, and that's what the promo flyer looks like. It's me offering flowers. So I think it's important for us to... Uh, just just acknowledge our ancestors. I feel like they're, in a sense, giving us flowers in their presence, you know? And so I used to think my purpose was to be a singer. And then I thought my purpose when I was a little girl to be was to be a worshiper. And then I thought my purpose was to be like a community leader. But I now know that my, I am here to spark the memory. Because everything that, all the knowledge that we're looking for is already within us. We just have to be still and we just have to remember it. I want to continue talking about ancestors and, and memory, but I also want to bring up a point about t tomorrow's mm -hmm. um, reimagining Black Death, the Requiem for Our Suffering. Mm -hmm. You want, you'd like the audience to show up in white. Yes, I want people to wear white um, for 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 the simple fact of lack of distraction. I come in here like I have on a red cape right now. Yes, but I come in here with a red cape. You're going to be staring at my cape all night. But if we all have on white, it's less distractions. And I think it's an invitation for us to just witness sound and to witness one another. Yes. So wear something white, um, whether it's a white shirt. But I don't want people to stay home because they don't have white. But even if it's just a white scarf, just wear something white. And it also shows a solidarity. It shows a sense of community. And it's a way to visually um, kind of hold hands. So this offering, I'll use your term then, this offering, you want to connect with the people that are in the audience as well, as well. I do. And, I, and, and I'm blessed to say that every time I stand before people, there is a real connection, which is why I think people continue to support me. I'm very grateful to be able to have a gift to feel. And um, I'm here to make people feel. I think every, a lot of things in our world um, prevent us from feeling, right? We do things because we don't want to feel. We People smoke, people drink, people run, people travel, people um, immerse themselves with different forms of entertainment because they don't want to feel. I think we're always focusing on escaping, but what are we running from? I think we're running from something to really essentially run to something because you really can't run from yourself. So I don't want to overwhelm people with the idea of feeling but for me, tomorrow is about bearing witness to your lived experience. And I want to offer people this space to bear witness to their own lived experience, which happens to include grief. Uh, back now to your, the spirit of your ancestors. How, how familiar are you with your, your ancestral story? Uh, is that something that you are well-versed in, or is it something that you, have, you don't really have a, 
I well, mean, some of us know more than others about uh, about uh, our legacies. How about you? Yeah, well, my grandfather, Henry W. Curtis III, did a lot of work on Ancestry.com, and now I am on Ancestry.com as well. So I've located uh, many people in my family, and... Um, when I was little, my grandfather used to take us to our family reunions. Our family is uh, from Daytona Beach, Florida. And my great-grandfather used to own, like, a, a shoe shop on Phil, on Fillmore. He used to be a chauffeur. Um, and I, I did learn one story about one of my ancestors that I'd love to share if there's time. Please. Um, one of my, I want to say, five-time great-grandmothers I learned was a slave enslaved person in South Carolina and they tell me that she was a breeder and so she just was you know would have these babies and have the babies taken from her Mm. and but this I learned that she had three children and decided one day that she would no longer be enslaved and that she would no longer breed children for anyone else and she took her three babies and she ran and when she ran, she somehow ended up in Florida. And that is why my grandfather is here today. And that is why I am here today. And oftentimes when I try to imagine, like, why do I, where do I get this fire from? Where do I get this spirit from that makes me get up and say, I'm going to keep going? I believe that um, her spirit is, is, is in me. Her name was Annie, they tell me. So I feel the presence of Annie Every day, I know she's inside of my DNA. I know she walks with me. And so to have the guts, to have the the audacity to take your children and escape, that woman is in my blood. I carry her with me. And so I'm able to offer, I'm able to, I have five children of my own. So perhaps <laughs> I would have been a breeder if I had been a slave. You know, perhaps. But I'm so grateful that I can stand here today knowing that I chose all of my children, and I carry her spirit with me. Wow, that's that's an amazing uh, story. So I guess when you when you reflect on that, getting a, up in front of an audience, it, it, it shades is doesn't. It, it's pretty it's pretty easy when you compare it to that. I see everything as an invitation. You know, I've been invited to to make this offering, and I'm simply inviting everybody to join me in this sacred circle, and allow. Uh, allow one another to just simply bear witness to one another. That's all that this is. So come with an open mind, come with an open heart, and just come to feel. You know, again, back to your family. When you read up about your work at um, at Feed Buffalo, mm-hmm. you you reflect a lot about. It. I think it's on your on your parent, on your mother, and also on your grandparents as well Absolutely. about about inspiring you and and actually kind of setting setting a, a pattern, so to speak, for you to. To, to follow and to live up to. Yeah, my, Talk about them. my entire life, my um, I, I grew up in a family of servants. You know, my grandmother would, I'm like, Grandma, where are you going? You just got off work. I have to go to the hospital and do Bible study with, with, with the seniors. You know, my grandfather has written checks for many people. Many people graduated from college because of his support. Um, he was a sergeant major. Um, in the Army Reserves, and over 800 cadets reported to him in the state of New York. I think that's monumental. And uh, my grandfather also did a lot of work to make sure that the African-American Veterans Monument come came to pass. He's on that committee. So my grandfather um, does so much work. My mother is a teacher. You know, um, she's an early intervention specialist. So to to be able to plant a seed into water and to just simply bear witness to a child is really to help shape our future. So I was raised in a family of givers and I'm simply um, trying my best to do my small part to live up to them. I'm only able to do what I do because of them. Well, you're most certainly giving it a, a good shot here in terms of your effort between uh, this work <laughs> and, of course, your work with Feed Buffalo as well. Yes, um, thank you. When You also said preparing for this offering that you talked to about maybe 45 people mm-hmm. about grief. Well, yes. Um, I haven't spoken to all of them yet, but I'm, I'm in the process of interviewing okay, okay. 45 people um, about grief. And so my goal is simply to, I'm learning that there's power in just being a witness. Um, I recently saw... The Emmett Till movie. I don't know if you saw it, but it was tough. But just knowing, seeing people in the witness stand and hearing how one person tells a story versus another, that can mean the that 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 can really be determining 
factor of your justice or not, you know? And so I think it's important to be a witness. And I just simply want to bear witness to um, how people feel, how people express. And some people that I interview, there's just silence when I ask them a question, but their body always does something. And that's, that's really powerful for me is to note that even silence has a sound. Like, I think the thing about grief is that we're always searching for a language for it. So I can tell you that I'm sad, but my sad on a scale from zero to 10 might be an 11. But for you, it might, if I just say, oh, I'm not feeling good today, you might take that as a two and I'm okay. And then you leave, you know what I mean? So I think it's important for us to, um, to, I think we can attempt to kind of identify some type of language to grief by simply being a witness to people. So I'm offering people to come. Um, I've been to get a lot of questions because I, my language is reimagine black death. And people are like, well, if I'm not black, you know, can I come? Yes, you can come. I think people should understand the power of being a witness, how to be a witness. And surely you have grief and surely you have your own lived experience that you need to be still long enough to bear witness to. So you are welcome. We're coming uh, down to our, our final couple of minutes here with Adrea Donor uh, this morning. She'll be at Shays tomorrow with the offering Reimagining Black Death, Requiem for Our Suffering. I know there's some plans you don't want to necessarily get into uh, how this is going to kind of move forward, but mm-hmm. your film work previously is very intriguing. There are some there is some information at your website about it, but just talk a little bit about that your work with film previously. Yeah, so I did uh, The Spirit of of Nina. A lot of people know me for my tribute to Nina Simone, but I did create a film called The Spirit of Nina in Buffalo. Um, And I basically discovered what her connection was to Buffalo. And I think to try to explain that to people, you know, I felt like I could do it better in a film. So I just called some friends and um, told them the story. And then we put this film together. And it actually went... Uh, went on to win some awards, was featured in two um, film festivals and one here in Buffalo and also one in Nina Simone's hometown in Tri, North Carolina. So, um, yeah, I love to to document. I believe it's really important for us to document evidence that we are here. I believe in the power of storytelling. Um, traditionally, you know, as a black woman, you know, I, we we have griots in our in our tradition and that is how we learn about our history because much of it was taken from us. So I think it's very powerful to lift the voice and to lift the voice um, as a first person, you know, storyteller. And that's what I love to do in my films. So I like to um, really allow people to kind of tell their own stories because when you try to like, you know, ask them questions and paraphrase, you can kind of take away some elements. And I think when you do it, over, you know, even in, in like how we're doing it versus like seeing it on a film. I think sometimes you can see people's hand movements. You get to stare into their eyes. You get to see their head movements and then you can feel their presence. And I think that is all powerful to helping us to, to bear witness that we are here. We're coming down, like I said, to our final couple of minutes. We always like to ask our guests about Buffalo and what is needed in Buffalo. You have a very great sense about, it seems about the present and about, about the spirit. How about Buffalo's spirit? What does Buffalo's spirit need? Mm. I think we are, I noticed that there's attempts to move forward and mostly in a discussion of development. But I think it's important that as we quote unquote build, that we remember like what this place once was. Um, I think we need to be more open. I think we need to see more trees. I think we need to um, see more green. I think that I just hope that we're not so focused on developing that we don't leave space for stillness and we don't leave land for us to grow food. You know, I think if we don't um, return to the place where we shared our resources and we lifted up one another and we talked to our neighbors and we knew who our neighbors were, I think we'll all be doomed. You, uh, <laughs> met, you met, well, that's, that's, it's probably a good note to end on, but we still have another minute. So, <laughs> but um, uh, you got a favorite, you mentioned being at the foot of Ferry Street for a place for peace. You got any other places we should go? 
wow, I love the Florida Ferry. I love um, Mirror Lake. There's a lake inside of Forest Lawn, ironically. Ah, uh, yes. That's so beautiful. And Forest Lawn is has this, it's weird. You wouldn't think you would find beauty, beauty in a, a cemetery, but I love to go there too sometimes. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Andrea Denor, tomorrow at Shays, Reimagining Black Death, Requiem for Our Suffering. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.